You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. We've looked so far this week at wisdom at the start of life. And yesterday we looked at God's wisdom for us in the midst of life. And today we will look at God's wisdom at the end of life. The book of Ecclesiastes was written by a wise man in the evening of life as he reflected back upon his varied varied experiences in the light of the inevitability of his own death. And for our purposes for today, we'll call this man the preacher. This preacher repeats a refrain throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, he says. All is vanity. That word, vanity, is a word that the King James translation, the King James version initially translated as um, vanity because the original word means something like breath or breeze or a vapor. Um, and I think of that when it's used metaphorically, it means to, it refers to the meaninglessness or the transitory nature of something. Others have translated this same word in Ecclesiastes as worthless or merest breath or futile or even absurd. I'd like to think of this word, vanity, as sort of the opposite of another word used throughout the Old Testament. And the word is ruach, or the breath given by God. The breath of God that gives us his life. The breath that God gives to Adam when he forms him out of the dust. And this word vanity, I would say, is more like not that life of breath that we breathe in that gives us life. I would say it's more like our exhaled breath. (sighs) That breath that contains nothing but useless waste to us. The preacher often talks about things. He talks about things throughout his life that he's observed, and then he concludes repeatedly throughout the book, this too is vanity. And he adds another phrase, this too is vanity and a striving after the winds. That is a strange phrase, striving after the wind. What does it mean? Except you think of the wind, can we ever bottle up the wind and contain it? No, of course not. We could never do that. And so I think maybe these two images, breath and then the striving after the wind, suggest that we humans are prone to using that which in our lives is actually ultimately useless. And we use that thing, whether we'll get into what those things might be, we use those things as a way of somehow chasing after our own breath. Bring it back, bring back more life to me. Bring back the years that are lost. I'm trying to regain my youth even as it flees away from me. So related to this refrain of vanity, the preacher laments the inevitable fate of every single human being regardless of our status. Death will come for each one of us in the end. We have numbered days, numbered breaths, 
numbered heartbeats, and we are helpless to control or even to know what that number is. Only God knows and controls the spans of our lives. In delusion, youth forgets about death, but age realizes that escape is impossible. So right about now, you're probably thinking, okay, Deborah, this is a little hard. We don't really want to hear about this. Where is the good news? Are you going to preach the gospel? And I'd say yes, <laughs> yes to that, of course. And I'll get that. I get that. We'll get there. But let's wait and see. Because the preacher does something wonderful for us. He tells it like it is. He doesn't shy away from acknowledging the frustrating things about life. And while at times he seems overly pessimistic, at least he's honest. I would say that this preacher's seeming questioning leads not to a pessimistic despair down in the dumps with nothing ever to redeem us, but it actually leads to what I would describe as a godly realism. Life is complex. Calling the darkness dark allows us to see and celebrate the light for what it is. And so with this in mind, we're going to zero in on a passage from Ecclesiastes that contains a dramatic re-emphasis of themes that are found all throughout the book. So if you're looking for Ecclesiastes in your Bible, you will find it right after Proverbs. And Proverbs you will find right after Psalms. So um, keep going. If you hit the Psalms, go a little further and you'll get through Proverbs and then you'll get to Ecclesiastes. And we're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And we're beginning at verse 1. I'm going to read most of verses 1 through 10, even though I'll skip over verse 4 and 5. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. It's intense. And here's the rest of it. Verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy. And drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol or death to which you are going. The word of the Lord. 
So we find these juxtapositions here in this one passage, this acknowledgement and despair over the reality of death, and also this grasping for what we can hold on to, even if just for the moment, this taking delight in what we have. Here, the preacher, in a sense, picks up where we left off yesterday with Job. The preacher observes this seeming randomness in whether a person will suffer or thrive based on their moral state, their righteousness. He recognizes the unpredictability of life and the certainty of death, regardless of how good a person is in this life. Death is truly the great equalizer. In the end, we must realize God is in control not us. I remember when I first went to seminary back in 2004, I was looking for ways, of course, to cut costs. And my school approached me with an opportunity. The original donor who had started the school back in the 1970s had reached her 90s, and her family was not sure they wanted her to live in that big house all by herself. And so I was able to have a couple of rooms in that big house, and I was like, what do you want me to do? What is my job? And they said, nothing. Just when you come home at night from wherever, you know, you've been out with your friends or whatever, just make sure, you know, the burners are off in the kitchen, the dog's been, you know, everything is as it should be, and the house is not going to burn down. That's all we really want you to do. And it turned out that even though there were more, almost 70 years between the two of us, we still got along like kindred spirits from drastically different eras. One night while my elderly friend and I were eating dinner and, yes, watching Jeopardy, she turned to me and she said to me suddenly, out of the blue, Deborah, what are you going to do when you come looking for me one morning and you find me dead in my bed? She was worried about the shock that it would be to young 20-something me. But I saw, too, in that question that she assumed she knew what kind of death she would have. And she assumed that she would, it would come soon, any moment, any day now. And she assumed that she would die peacefully in her sleep. I said I'd miss her, but that I'd be okay with that. And then I asked her in return, what will you do? If God does not allow you to die the way that you want to die, we are not in control of our life or our death. And yet, this knowledge does not have to lead us to despair. Rather, the futility of this striving in this life, striving after wealth, striving after righteousness, maybe, or wisdom in our own strength apart from God, striving after pleasure, this futility is meant to crush us so that the only place to go is to trust in God and to live in the present moment with what we have. We see this all throughout Ecclesiastes, where this trust is called for, urged even, and the preacher asks his hearers to fear God while he also invites them to take stock of what really matters and to enjoy life's simple pleasures along the way with those they love. Speaking of simple pleasures during the pandemic, my family did um, all the things that 
it seems like everyone else did. I did try to bake bread, and it was disastrous. We streamed Netflix. Um, I did bake other things to better success. And we even adopted a rescue dog. It was the first dog that my husband or I have had as grown adults. We all had dogs as kids. Um, And it all happened rather quickly. Um, I had driven 90 minutes with my then three-year-old to arrive at the most bizarre house filled with a pack of mangy wild dogs waiting to be rescued. And then our prospective pup was let out to run loose around the house. All she wanted to do was sniff the places where all the other dogs had been. And she was wild. Um, I was trying to get to know her, but she wouldn't stop to even smell my hand. And I'm also simultaneously trying to keep my three-year-old from touching anything. And then the guy is saying, here's, here's the paper. here are the papers. Why don't you sign right here? And I'm thinking, I need to sign here just so I can get out of here. And so I said a quick prayer, Lord, if this is right, let it be so. And if it's not, help it to be undone if it can be. And so I signed on the dotted line, grabbed the dog and my daughter, got in the car, and got out of there. But for the first few weeks, it felt a little bit like an arranged marriage. Okay, I read online, she's a Chihuahua mix. Chihuahuas live for like 20 years. She's very young. We might have this dog for a long time. What have we gotten ourselves into? But as we kept getting to know each other, she just turned out to be the most delightful, affectionate dog ever with the strangest personality. And she gives us so many laughs, so many snuggles, so much joy. God answered that hasty prayer. And I have to say, in light of Ecclesiastes, in this short and uncertain life, this dog has been a simple pleasure that I believe God has given us to enjoy. He has granted us this simple pleasure, and we will enjoy her for as long as he sees fit to give her to us. Ecclesiastes calls for this kind of simple enjoyment of simple pleasures. One, and because of this, one commentator on Ecclesiastes has argued for calling the wise man a preacher of joy. And he says this because he repeatedly issues this same point of light and this um, call to enjoy the simple pleasures, even while it's in juxtaposition with his laments of the darkness of this life in this world. Earlier in chapter 3, the preacher said, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And again, in the face of not knowing what God is doing at any given moment, the preacher counsels, I perceive that there is nothing better than to be joyful and to do good as long as you live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. This kind of toil here mentioned is different from that toil for self that's driven by ambition or the desire to gain wealth. No, this is the simple joy of saying, I've been given this task and God has given me the ability to do it and I get to do it. Um, There's also this pleasure. The pleasure that he advocates for is different from that sinful drive to self-indulge to the point of exhaustion or addiction or to point out your own privilege. 
Other repetitions throughout Ecclesiastes end up um, a repetition of this call to joy. They escalate all the way up to chapter 9. And in this passage I read for you today, the preacher adds in the companionship of a loved one, covenanted companionship as a simple joy. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. Some evangelical scholars, I must admit, do denounce this preacher's viewpoint. One of them even calls him a questioning, confused man. But I think that the preacher's realism is actually truly Christian, and here's why. As Christians, aren't we called to cease our strivings of self? Aren't we called to relinquish the illusion of control or the delusion of achievement apart from God? Aren't we promised joy even in the midst of the chaos and suffering of this life? Aren't we called to live every single one of the days of our life as if it might be our last? to live in the present, to live without regret for the past and without fear for the future. This is so much more than some kind of new age moment of meditative bliss. This is not just some kind of carpe diem or hakuna matata. This is only possible, this freedom and this delight in simple things. It is only possible when we trust God. Fearing God involves a kind of spiritual realism about who God is in all of his great majesty and all of his sacrificial love for us and realism about who we are and all of our brokenness, frailty, and need. Honest realism causes us to trust God, to prioritize what's really important, to let go of what we can't control, to enjoy those simple pleasures, and even to enjoy our work, not for ourselves, but for God. So while this preacher offers wisdom at the end of life, I would say that we would do well, none of us think we're at the end of our lives, we would do well to adopt it earlier in life, right? We could ask ourselves even now, maybe in the middle of your life, in the noon of your life, or the morning of your life, what is really important? What will last? Do I need to gain partnership in the firm, or do I need to spend more time with my children? Do I need to spend my time maintaining a bigger house, or does God have something else that he wants me to do with my time? Or should I get this cute thing that I just want, even though I have 50 other cute things like it, just like it, that I don't even use or have space for anymore? A few years back, a Swede named Margreta Magnusson wrote a book called The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning. Have you heard about this? She recommends that those who are in their middle age clean their houses out in advance of their death, clean out all the photos, all the files, all the knickknacks, all the stuff, anything that you're not actually using. And instead of leaving all that stuff for your kids to deal with, Magnuson says, if you get rid of it now, you're doing them a favor and you will feel better <laughs> uh, by facing your death now with honest realism. She's saying you can live a better life now. 
The preacher, honestly, would probably look at each one of our houses, never mind our storage units, and I am guilty of this, and the preacher from Ecclesiastes would probably say, vanity of vanities, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Or why are you still hanging on to that? The preacher calls me and you to prioritize in this life what is most important. When the fear of the Lord is placed first and foremost in our lives, every other priority falls into place. And so for you, if you find yourself in the evening of life and you have failed at this, you've gotten lost along the way, you have majored in minors, You have obsessed over your house being just so, or your appearance being just so, or your financial profile being just so, and perhaps your relationships have failed as a result. It is never too late to reevaluate and start over. And if you're younger, and hopefully in the noon of life, or maybe even the morning, living life in the light of its brevity helps you appreciate what God has given you in the moment instead of always striving after the wind. Through the preacher here in Ecclesiastes, God calls you to honest realism, to simple pleasures, and to what really matters. And he does this not because he wants to shame you or take you down a peg or get you on your knees so you grovel a little bit. God wants you to have this because you are God's own priority. You are what simply matters to God, and he wants Nothing but the best for you. Nothing but the best is good enough for you. Remembering that, that love that God has for you is all that matters and all that will help you reevaluate your life. Let us pray. Lord God, as the waters of time flow ever more rapidly around us, Would you, by your grace, cause us to cling to you and your love? Lead and guide us toward the things that are most important. And even as we await that swiftly approaching day when we will see you face to face, give us joy in the moment. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.